music like emo or pop punk or whatever, even though it's taking pretty much the exact same principles of boy bands, but it's presenting it in an acceptably masculine way, that's why like boys were also into it. And you would see just as many guys at emo band concerts as you would girls. There's there's beauty in the same way. There's the dance, there's the moves, there's the showmanship, the spectacle. This Ends at Prom is a podcast that dives deep into coming of age and teen girl movies from the queer, feminist, cisgender, and transgender perspectives of wives and film analysts BJ and Harmony Colangelo. Today, we'll be talking not just about millennial pop groups, but also about pop punk, the emo scene, and hair metal, and how we reacted to genres of music we did and did not listen to. We'll also cover the gender contamination implicit in popular music, our favorite boy band haircuts, and what we hope for this next generation of teenage stars and the fangirls and fanboys that continue to decide the direction our culture will go. All right, everybody, we are back. You don't know that we're back, but we just uh, had the recording of our beautiful conversation, Lost. So we are coming back to you in a meta conversation in which we are going to retrace our steps and try to give you some semblance of the conversation we just had. So I am here with two of my favorite podcasters, BJ and Harmony Colangelo, our teen queens of today. Oh. I've always wanted to be a teen queen. You've always been a teen queen. Thank you for being uh, saying that we're some of your favorites. You're one of our favorites, hence why we are recording this now again. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be like, come on. These two are troopers. We don't love you that much. <laughs> you love me enough to do this one more time <laughs> and that will be it it's fine i can keep going i can do this all night it's cool great well we are going to start by setting our each of our individual teen scenes so we're going to see uh who we were as music lovers when we were anywhere from 11 to 17 let's say so bj will you tell us your teen scene all righty so as a teenager I was really big into the emo and scene scene, <laughs> like big time, uh, was very invested into my space. If any of you remember Britney Bombshell, hello, I am MySpace famous, short lived. <laughs> so I was really, really into that sort of music. I was raised in a household, though, that was really into hair metal. So a lot of the theatrics and bombastic musicality of hair metal and especially the aesthetic was really appealing to me. Uh, a big fan of men who look and sing like women. That really does a lot for me. Um, but then at the same time, like, even though it was kind of this, like, edgy, I always describe myself as, like, if Tracy Flick was goth because I was such an overachiever, but was also, like, goth scene emo nightmare child. But at the same time of all of that, I was a professional competitive baton twirler for my entire life. So I developed an affinity for a lot of like really danceable music, a lot of upbeat stuff that I could perform to. So I got really well versed in pop music. So everything Britney Christina boy bands, I was very much into it, if if only for that angle. And then I'm also a theater kid. So a lot of the, the flair for the dramatics really resonates well with me. And so everything that I listen to is just kind of very big and very emotional. <laughs> I have to say that as a young child growing up, when I started to recognize what music was, the late 90s was both a great time and not a great time because I didn't enjoy boy bands and I didn't enjoy the very angry music that was coming out in the rock scene. So it was it was a bit of a vacuous void. However, I did own a lot of like pop music related stuff as like a saga, probably a seven year old, eight year old. My mother in her infinite wisdom decided to go to the a Best Buy, I would assume. And for her child, who was already getting made fun of, went to the clerk and said, hey, what are the most popular CDs with the kids these days? And I ended up with Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera's debut albums, as well as five through eight editions of now and there's there's some fun stuff on there like 
ever clear who I like and the most rebellious thing I'd ever heard as like an eight, nine year old. It's My Life by Bon Jovi, which when you say Bon Jovi is one of your first favorite bands, that's reasonable in the 80s, maybe the early 90s, not in the year 2000. (laughs) And I think that that's why I had developed an affinity for old man music. Mm -hmm. And uh, that carried on into high school where I really loved anything with like a killer guitar solo and if anyone were to criticize my bands i'm like how dare you they're a legend what do you know your your band's gonna be gone but they'll still be listening to mott the hoople in 20 years (laughs) they're not if you're curious i mean we saw them live not long ago oh god those men in their 70s really like dusted off their guitars and hit the stage and they were very fun and i'm convinced that we were 30 years younger than everyone else in that crowd (laughs) Well, let's see. I would say I wasn't a boy band fan. The only boy band ephemera I owned was a Backstreet Boys poster with all of the eyes blacked out and or eye patches on or teeth blacked out. And I did love the Spice Girls. And that was a little bit before my teen years. But they were definitely my pop love. And they still are. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did you have the Spice Girls Barbies? No, I didn't have any Barbies. Oh, I had all of them. And my mom was like an extreme couponer growing up. So she would like try to find them for like really good deals. Like that was her big thing. I was like, mom, they're never going on sale. But at a certain point, they did go on sale because the Spice Girls were getting taken over by all of the other like pop starlets of the age. But I had all the Spice Girls. I had all of the NSYNC marionettes because they were puppets that you could have. And I also had the Britney Spears Baby One More Time doll. Those were ones that I sought out like thirsted over and I'm very fortunate to have gotten them because my mom like I don't know I'm convinced she like sold an organ somewhere because we were too poor to afford those and she made it happen (laughs) so the other thing I really liked was Blink-182 which as we mentioned in the episode felt like the first pop punk boy band and I I I think you could say the same thing about Sum 41 that came Mm -hmm. after because they came on the tail end of the boy band craze and obviously all the small things was the video that was really making fun of them Mm -hmm. and I loved Blink-182 they're very problematic (laughs) looking back a lot more problematic than the boy bands of the day and I don't know there was something about and I know you felt this way too BJ about like not being like the other girls and not Mm -hmm. being obsessed with the same things that felt easy to make fun of because all the guys were making fun of them. So what was your experience with like fangirldom? So I think I did a lot of mental gymnastics to justify my liking of boy bands and pop music. And I Mm -hmm. think I got it in my head that my reasons for liking them were different than the other girls. So that way, like, oh, I'm not like them. I'm not one of those girls that covers my entire locker with pictures of Justin Timberlake. That's just not who I am. But I was also the same girl who absolutely cried in my mom's car when we went and saw the uh, No Strings Attached tour at the Allstate Arena. And it was a huge deal. And I wept in the car, but I didn't do I, I wouldn't do it in public. Like you could never know that like I was really that into it. And in my head, because I was a performer, I was like, oh, I really, really like sync because the choreography is so good. And I bought Darren's dance grooves like, you know, a lot of people did and learned all of the choreography. And I can still do all of it. I can still do Bye Bye Bye. I can still do Oops, I Did It Again. Like these are routines that live in my body because I did them so much as a child. Can confirm. <laughs> yeah, Harmony has seen it happen. <laughs> but um, I got that in my head that like this is why I'm into them. And like with Backstreet Boys, because I also like I hate that there was always the feeling that you had to choose Backstreet Boys. I was really into musically because they had the more complicated harmonies and I was a theater kid. So in my brain, it was like, oh, this is how I'm going to learn how to like pick my part out of an ensemble piece. And this is going to help me in choir. And then I'm going to be the best alto that ever existed. And that was like the mentality that I had. So even though I was so immersed in this world and this culture and knew all the songs, knew all the choreography. I had like tricked myself into thinking that like, 
oh, but I like them for different reasons. Like, I'm not going home at night crying and thinking, like, oh, my God, I have to marry J.C. Chazé. He was my favorite, but I, like, didn't allow myself to go that far. So it very much was that, like, not like most girls attitude, even though I very much was just like all of those girls. (laughs) Harmony, you have a different type of perspective. I don't remember fangirls by way of, like... NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and like peak boy band fandoms because I didn't have girls that wanted to hang out with me at that period because I was a chubby loser and boys had cooties and they didn't want anything to do with me. So that was totally removed from my world because I didn't watch things like TRL. I was busy watching cartoons. But I can say that when I got a bit older and got to high school and emo bands became popular and they carried the same sort of rabid obsessiveness that boy bands did, but for a very different type of girl, like dare I say girls who are not like other girls, it became very apparent that there is no force as strong in this world as a teen girl's love of her boy band crushes. So I had friends around me who were then obsessively writing like smutty fanfic of the members of My Chemical Romance hooking up, including Mikey and Gerard, who are brothers. And I would prefer them have not done that. But (laughs) uh, hey, I guess that's just what you're going to do when you don't know what to do with all those feelings and emotions. But I had friends who like anytime I went over to their house, we had to watch the Life on the Murder Scene documentary about the rise of My Chemical Romance. We had to watch it so much that I had friends who would then, like, get up and act out parts of, like, when specifically Mikey hits the kickball, they have to, like, kick their leg. And it was something. It it was, like, Rocky Horror. It was weird. Shadow play. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. It was too much. And it made me not like to listen to My Chemical Romance because... There were genuinely people where they only wanted to talk about one thing. I am so glad that you brought up emo because I would like to talk about emo, which feels in so many ways like a boy band. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it's probably going to make a lot of former emo kids reconsider and recontextualize uh, their fandom. Well, they should. As they should. (laughs) But no, emo bands definitely feel like the next phase in the evolution in terms of the boy band, because you're dealing with a lot of young boys that are singing songs that are going to appeal to a very like vulnerable side of a of a girl that are going to make you feel very validated in your emotions the aesthetic and the look of an emo band is paramount because you have to have the good swoopy hair and the very 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 skinny jeans and a lot of times the makeup uh, you need that appearance in order to be you know seen as not posers right like that's like the fake authenticity that we attach to emo music. But it really is just an extension of a boy band because when you're very, very young and you have a boy band like lead singer telling you like, hey girl, you're perfect and I love you. You're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is the best feeling. And then when you're a teenager and all of your emotions are like so big that you don't know what to do with them and you have somebody singing a song that's like, life sucks and I hate my dad and I want to die. You're Mm. like, yeah, same bro. And it makes (laughs) you feel really validated and really seen. It's just the evolution of like where you're at emotionally that this is the music that resonates with you. Cut my wrist. And black my eyes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, so this is a theory that I have come up with just in having this conversation. So on, you know, our first conversation that is lost to the ether, we talked about the aesthetic of boy bands and you equated it to like peacocking, right? And like how so many male animals have to do like these big presentational things. And I was talking about like the hair that they all have and like the smile and the gyrating. The responses that you get from that is like very, very primal. Like it's hitting you on this primal, like animalistic lizard brain level that you get so infatuated with these boy bands that you don't know what to do with those emotions. And then when you go to like emo bands, it's less primal and it's more like intellectual. And now suddenly because you're 
you're a little bit older and you can start to actually navigate these emotions that you're feeling and understand what they are, you're going to be more inclined to respond to something that's intellectual. Because especially as a teenager, a lot of times we're not stimulated in terms of our intellectual being. That's why we seek out things like music, like movies, like books, because we're looking for that stimulation. And when you have something like emo music, which is frequently very poetic, very metaphorical, it almost feels like you're involved in this process and like you're getting validated of like, you're smart because this means something to you. And like, you resonate with this and it's not primal because we know what primal instincts are when we're in high school, because The primal instinct is the boy who walks up to you and is like, nice tits. And like, that's not appealing to you anymore. Like primal kind of behavior is like unattractive and you're looking for something more intellectually stimulating and emo just like swoops right in there with like soft boy antics and manipulates you the same way that boy bands do. I think that's also true, but I think that you have to get your foot in the door first And in that sense, emo and boy bands, the first thing you notice about them, unless you're listening to the radio, but like if you see them, you notice how they look. And I think that there's a very um, unthreatening way that they present themselves. You know, emo bands, they're sensitive, Mm -hmm. whether it's the singer songwriter types like bright eyes or never shout never or a little more of a I'm screaming and the only way that I can communicate my feelings is by screaming through song like a very angry musical (laughs) and there is something appealing about that vulnerability but the most important thing I think is the aesthetic because if you're a boy band with bad aesthetic like I don't know the doofy looking guys in color me bad Like, the guy who looks like Kenny G? Like, do you really think anyone was clamoring for him? Nobody was clamoring for the member of Color Me Bad that no one ever talks about. But to be fair, every single member of Color Me Bad has bad hair. Yeah, hair matters. Aesthetic matters. I think of uh, even going back a little bit further in the 80s where we talked about hair metal just a little bit ago, because both BJ and I love hair metal. There was something appealing when you listen to uh, girls who dated members of like Motley Crue or Poison or any of these bands. There's something about these girls who were interested in them where they wore makeup. They had they did their hair. They wore tight pants and pink and leopard and all these like effeminate, loud, very peacocky type things. But it was also unthreatening despite these being bad boys. And I think that that familiarity, that that closeness, either emotionally or aesthetically, in the case of boy bands, hair metal, emo, et cetera, et cetera, I think there is something that is a lot more easily understood. Like, you have to connect fewer dots in order to understand a boy like that or, you know, an adolescent teen like that as a young girl. And there is appealing to that. There, there's safety to it. There's comfort in it, especially when they're saying beautiful things that you can relate to regardless of your age. Like, do you think One Direction was saying, like, all the things they do in That's What Makes You Beautiful and it did not resonate in the exact same impact that any emo lyric did, but for a younger audience, I think that there's an accessibility in both the lyrics and the image of both of these bands. Yeah, definitely. There's something very juvenile about their lyrics, and I think in having their lyrics appeal so strongly to boys, it ends up alienating, like, artistically a lot of girls, where it doesn't appeal to them, but, like, the aesthetic does. Because Eminem's a pretty boy. Travis Barker is pretty to them. Like, there's, there, there is an aesthetic draw and, like, even, like, a pop sensibility that is nice. But uh, NSYNC wasn't writing songs about killing their ex-wife. <laughs> like Eminem was. So not yet. There, uh, <laughs> not yet, I guess. Never, never say never. But there is definitely things present in these a bit more hard edge and masculine bands, you know? Definitely. Well, definitely. And I think also when you have a band like NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys singing about heartbreak, they sing about it with you know, honesty in the sense that they're, they're sad about it. Like they're really upset that you're gone and they will do anything that they can to get you back. Whereas the emo bands and Blink-182, when they were heartbroken, it was a giant middle finger. I'm screaming at the world because this is either the worst pain I've ever felt in my life and everything is awful 
or I don't care and you sucked anyway. <laughs> and I think that those are so much more like masculine responses to heartbreak, mm. or at least I should say it's acceptable masculinity in terms of heartbreak. Like if you were a teen boy and you got dumped by your girlfriend and you got upset about it, you were labeled like a pussy or you were labeled gay because like, how dare you feel this way? How dare you be so broken up over being pussy whipped by this bitch or something? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of this as someone who grew up in boy world. Right, right. So like that was such a common thing. So then music like emo or pop punk or whatever, even though it's taking pretty much the exact same principles of boy bands, but it's presenting it in an acceptably masculine way. That's why, like, boys were also into it. And you would see just as many guys at emo band, like, concerts as you would girls. But it's one of those things where, like, I think we were having two very separate experiences, but having the exact same experience. But nobody realized it was the exact same experience because we socially condition everyone differently. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And the hair metal bands that you both loved, they exude a femininity. Of course, they're extremely feminine and extremely coded as gay and yet mm -hmm. considered hyper-masculine at the same time, which the boy bands of our day were not considered masculine at all. Right. So something that's this is going to be an interesting, weird tangent. Um, Chelsea, did you watch Peacemaker at all? No. Okay. It's real fun. It's very fun. Um, so for those who have not either, Peacemaker, it's, you know, a superhero TV series. It's made by James Gunn. It stars John Cena. It's real vulgar. So, like, let's just get that out of there. But the character of Peacemaker, his dad is, like, he's he's a Nazi. Like, his character is named is, like, White Dragon. Like, it's not even trying to be mm -hmm. subtle. Like, he's a neo-Nazi white supremacist toxic masculinity piece of shit played by Robert Patrick beautifully but Peacemaker the character and the human is obsessed with hair metal like obsessed with hair metal and James Gunn has talked about like he included the hair metal aspect of it intentionally because he thinks that it is such a great juxtaposition and that we have this like peace obsessed like sort of hero and his actions of liking hair metal is in direct retaliation from his abusive white supremacist father. 
And like music is one of those things that we can actually control as teenagers. We have like such little control in our lives, but we can control what music we listen to. So there's no better middle finger to like the conservatism than men wearing makeup and fetish gear, writing songs that make women worship them like gods. And like, (laughs) I've found that to be so fascinating because even James Gunn has said, he's like, I'm not a huge fan of hair metal, but in terms of like what they represent and how they are such a middle finger to like, classic masculinity it made perfect sense why somebody who grew up in like a toxic masculine household is going to gravitate towards that form of masculinity where like you could look so effeminate and girls would fall to your feet and like there's power in that yeah harmony do you have anything you want to add to that oh i can always add everything to hair metal because you were talking about like the dicks out vibe. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's truly nothing more masculine than the concept of cock rock. But also David Lee Roth is one of the gayest straight men ever produced as a species because he does high <laughs> kicks and jazz hands. That man actually will dance and he'll scat and he'll wear like leopard print and feathers and all sorts of outlandish things. And women fell to his feet, and every man wanted to be him. Van Halen as a band influenced an entire decade of hair metal that would follow based purely on the charisma of David Lee Roth and the ability of, like, the musicianship. Like, the musicianship is what got men in the door, but, like, the sex appeal and the femininity and that showmanship was really appealing to women. And it's really fascinating to look at it because... Someone like David Lee Roth or someone like Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, they're putting on these like hyper masculine, very sexual performances, wearing like skin tight leather or denim pants, open chested with their chest hair showing and like doing all of these really like alluring, provocative moves on stage for a crowd of mostly men. There is this homoeroticism that exists in, like, a lot of classic rock or some of the most big bands ever, just ever. And yet, if you strip all of that showmanship away, that bravado, that machismo, and you boil it down to its most base components, there's there's no irony. There's no fun to it anymore. There's no appeal. And then you lose the male audience as a band. And I think that that's one thing that is so fascinating about the pop ethics of a boy band, because they're not trying to appeal to men at large. And they've stripped away all of that masculinity. There is beauty in the same way. There's the dance, there's the moves, there's the showmanship, the spectacle. But there's no... It's actually like less gay than David Lee Roth ever was. (laughs) And yet it's seen as infinitely gayer. From, like, a turn-of-the-millennia perspective. It's such a fascinating dichotomy. And one cannot help but also think of professional sports when we think of the uh, male fandom, the masculine fandom, uh, because we see scenes that are almost identical to what we see at a One Direction concert. Crying, screaming, painting your face, wearing a shirt of your favorite team. It's an emotional experience that we treat like it is completely normal and masculine and just a bunch of guys looking at hot guys, for the most part, wrestling around. Oh, yeah. Even wearing this number of your favorite player, like getting down to like that specific of a thing. First of all, I'm I don't understand boy bands for the most part. I also don't understand sports fans. So I just don't understand fandom, apparently. But (laughs) the argument that you always see for any kind of like football or baseball or even like professional wrestling, which BJ and I are both huge fans of is that it's like, ah, yes, the classics of, like, Roman gladiators. That's the comparison we're drawing here. Ah. Versus a boy band, which I guess would be more equivalent to, like, oh, displays of the arts. We're seeing Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin or or Tchaikovsky. We're seeing the works of these men. And because it's artistic, there is a softness to it that appeals to women more so than men. And what's super funny to me when I think about 
like the sports comparison is like two things pop into mind. So, you know, like Harmony said, we're both really, really into professional wrestling. Professional wrestling is one of the gayest things known to man. And that's one of the reasons that I love it so much. There is an incredible article. I encourage everyone to look up on NPR that's called Drag is Raw, I think. And it's about how RuPaul's Drag Race and Monday Night Raw are on at the same time. And they're essentially the same show. Um, You're dealing with people fighting for titles that don't actually really mean anything. There's a lot of catch phrases, there's distinct costume, and there is an exaggerated uh, presentation of gender. Mm -hmm. It's the same show. Big meaty men slapping meat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. But I have seen grown men, grown like Midwest, tougher than kind of guys openly weep because they've heard the bell and they know the undertaker is in the same building as them and they like lose their mind about it and they cry and the same thing i'm i'm a chicago girl born and raised and when the cubs won the world series my dad called me and wept and my dad looks like joe pesci so i need you to imagine joe pesci calling you in the middle of the night crying because the cubs won the world series and like people talk about that win all the time because it was over a hundred years and it's like oh my god i can't believe this finally happened it's remarkable this thing that so many people have been wanting for and you know they finally got it and and, you know everyone's crying and it's this beautiful inspiring thing where it's like i also know girls that would like spend their entire summer trying to raise money for concert tickets to go see their favorite band perform live so that they could go in the crowd and they could hear them sing in their ears live and they could cry and yet that is viewed as unacceptable or pathetic or something to make fun of but a grown man crying over sports like no 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 that's respect that's the sign of a true fan i need to see bart with his like painted naked body spilling beer on me because he's screaming because they just scored a point like that is such a more dignified thing than a girl (laughs) crying at a concert yeah what like i want to say like what's that all about and it's like it's misogyny and the patriarchy like we know what it's about it's just infuriating that there's not a lot we can do to change that until like the entire world gets real cool about some stuff so i want to go back really quick to talking about hair because Our last conversation about hair was very fun. And you mentioned kind of the idea that the boy band hair is peacocking. Oh, yeah. It might have something biologically to do with attracting a mate or something like that. And first of all, what are your guys' favorite kind of boy band hair? Oh, okay. So my favorite boy band hair is when it is definitely well-maintained and it is specifically styled. I really thought hard about this and my favorite is Jordan Knight and New Kids on the Block. And like New Kids on the Block was a little bit before my time, but my mom got me into them once I started getting into my own boy bands, but it was so perfectly coiffed, but it didn't look crunchy and hairspray, but I could tell like, oh no, he took some time to do this hair and it also moves with him. Like it's almost an extension of him. It is his peacock feather because you watch that step-by-step video and he's in his little overalls and he's gyrating and like the overalls don't move because it's a thick fabric but I can tell that like his chest and his hips are moving and he's got that perfect smile and then that perfect head of hair that is just like it looks like it's flowing in the wind but there's no wind but it's also not messy because it's so well maintained it's mesmerizing and I think the way I described it is it's like similarly to like when they put a token in front of your eyes when you're being hypnotized (laughs) like that's how I feel looking at Jordan Knight gyrating and I'm not even straight Like, I don't like men, and yet I can't look away from him when he does this. I'm just magnetized by it. And I felt similarly about, like, J.C. Chazé has kind of similar hair, and, like, J.C. was my favorite in NSYNC. And I really, really liked AJ because he was, like, edgier. Like, the facial hair Mm. did a lot for me because, again, it's an extension of that character. I could tell, like, oh, he's got a goatee. He's a bad boy. He wears sunglasses that are framed with, like, dark blue. (laughs) Like, that, you know, did something for (laughs) me. me but then I also because there absolutely is like a middle part boy band to like queer and or non-binary pipeline that exists that if you had hair like Nick Carter or Ryder Strong from Boy Meets World you were my my thing because that becomes the haircut that a lot of (laughs) lesbians have when they get older Uh it's like every lesbian's first short haircut and I just don't love the middle part on any. Yeah, you don't like the McDonald's arches of hair. Oh, 
God, where everyone looks like the oldest kid on Home Improvement. I am not a fan, and I hate that it's coming back. <laughs> I've just got to say that while we're talking about this, I Googled specifically boy band hair, and I'm not loving You're not loving any of it? There's not one that speaks to you. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lot of spiked frosted tips or just yeah. like spiked in the front or like... Justin Timberlake's ramen noodle curls or too many horrible middle parts. It's not for me. Maybe it's that I had curly hair and I knew I couldn't pull any of this ever off. So subconsciously, I just was like, no, it's not a shun. <laughs> I hate it all out of like spite. But like, I don't know. The the Hanson boys have pretty hair, I guess. <laughs> Oh, the Hanson boys. <laughs> Maybe they're my favorites. <laughs> Hanson was one of the only boy bands that I couldn't super get into. And I think it's because in my brain, I was like, there's something Mormon feeling about this and I can't get down with it. I don't even know if they are Mormon. That's just what my brain, like family bands outside of like the Jackson 5, I was like always a little sus about <laughs> growing up. I don't know. I I don't have a favorite boy band, but I'll say that the Osmonds wrote Crazy Horses. So, like, that's a strong contender right there. (laughs) Speaking of the boy band to queer (laughs) lesbian slash non-binary pipeline, I would say that, well, first of all, I can't pull off a middle part. I've tried it and I look like someone named Terry. That's what I say. I look like a man (laughs) named Terry. (laughs) (laughs) But the boy band look didn't really resonate with me, but the punk aesthetic, prank punk, really is what I like to call it, really um, the jackass time, all of that was very much my Mm -hmm. thing. And I was a young queer person who hung out with boys but wanted to be a girl as, you know, how it goes, blah, blah, blah. But there was something about... Tom DeLong. I love the way Tom DeLong sings to this day, but there's something about him. I thought I was in love with him, but really I wanted to be like him, look like him. I adapted all of his looks into looks that were feminine enough for me to pull off with still kind of this masculine center. But I don't know. I think that there's something about that. There's just so much gender wrapped up into this. And how could there not be? Because we're all teenagers. We're all figuring these things out. But I think there's something about being young and relating to these bands. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. I joke all the time that there is a, uh, hey, in high school, were you like an emo kid or a scene kid? There's a 50-50 shot uh, that you're going to follow a pipeline that will lead you to being a trans woman at some point. I think that there's some queerness to boy bands and emo groups alike because uh, boy bands are very clean cut. There is this um, like almost young Twinkie aesthetic to them. There's this femininity because they're talking about their feelings there. This is also the turn of millennium is the era of the metrosexual. So like if you're a man who knows how to dress himself in America, congratulations, everyone thinks you're gay. But especially with like emo aesthetic, you got to explore gender in a really unique way where you get to wear eyeliner and it's part of a scene like you're not adventuring like outside of gender by yourself there's other people that are doing it which means that you're not alone and you're not weird hey they don't sell skinny jeans yet so you have to go to the girls pants section and buy tiny pants that will not fit over your hips and i think that you started to get to experiment with these options i know that i wore like Converse in high school because they were gender neutral. I wore like puka shell necklaces because they were one of the only necklaces boys could wear in high school and it was fine. There is this freedom as a fan of a movement that gives you the opportunity to venture outside of where you normally would, especially in a suburb where like the typical masculine pipeline there is, ah, you gotta like football or you gotta join the military. That's the classic masculine pipeline in the suburbs where you're not going to do anything else. On your show, part of actually your show, your episode, I believe it was on Bring It On, was a big inspiration for our Fangirls episode because you talked about the idea of contamination and how when enough girls like something, it becomes tainted and then divorced away from the world of boys and like in both inaccessible and rejected by boys. And so 
BJ, you and I may have not been those kind of girls with music, but we were definitely those kind of girls with movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole aspect of contamination is look at the teen movie genre in general. A film like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Back to the Future is viewed in like the film canon as a classic film. These are classic coming-of-age stories. But if you talk about something like Bring It On or Clueless, it suddenly becomes a teen girl movie. Even though those are two of the best movies ever made. They absolutely are. We did for, I think it was like our first 50 episodes, we went through all of the films that we have reviewed and like ranked them and i think harmony and i both put bring it on as the best one that we've talked about it truly is like there was some some wars that we had like for example bj refused to put rock and roll high school in the top tier like it deserved to be but we (laughs) both agreed emphatically that bring it on is the best teen movie that we had covered at the time that's romantic still probably is yeah i think it is probably still If it's not still the best one, it's pretty dang high up there. Uh But the reason that it gets so frustrating when people discount a movie like Bring It On is Bring It On, yes, is it a cheerleader movie? Of course, on the surface. But it is also a movie about interrogating white privilege and interrogating cultural appropriation and participating in broken systems. And these are really important themes that we should be talking to our youth about, especially when they are at their most vulnerable vulnerable and easily swayed by the media as teenagers because they're just flooded with things telling you that you suck and you're not good enough. So if you're able to have that conversation, that's like, cool, let's talk about like beauty standards. Let's talk about the way that culture has been stolen from marginalized people. You can have that conversation by using a movie like Bring It On as a launch pad, not to like hate on a movie like American Pie, but you're not going to have a conversation quite as deep. Like you can talk about like purity culture and virginity, that's for sure. But there are also like hundreds of movies that are having that same conversation. How many teen movies are having that conversation about privilege? They're just not. How many movies are doing things like Sidney White with Amanda Bynes, which is essentially like baby's first introduction to socialism. Like these are movies that are discounted by the masses as being only for girls when there are important lessons that can be learned from everybody. And it gets really frustrating because it's not movie-specific either. Like, this is an entire cultural phenomenon. We do it with our products. We do it with food. I mean, the one that I go to as of late is like White Claw. White Claw was just supposed to be like a summary alternative to beer. And because now it has been associated with like women and in particular with white women, it is now marketed as such. And now if you're a guy who wants to just enjoy a White Claw because you don't want to drink something like beer, now it's it's the Zima conversation all over again. Now you're gay. <laughs> because, like, how could you drink this fizzy clear thing? Now you're gay. And we know that, like, homophobia and misogyny, like, kind of go hand in hand with one another, and they exist within very similar spaces. And it's so frustrating because if a man wants to watch a movie, like, we talk all the time in our show, like, these are marketed towards teen girls, but obviously these are lessons that can be applied to everybody. I mean, we just saw this happen last week. Disney and Pixar released Turning Red, and a film critic made himself, like, villain of the day on Twitter because he wrote an article that was essentially saying that he, as, like, a white guy, could not relate to this movie because it starred a Chinese Canadian 13 year old girl. And he was like, yeah, this doesn't appeal to like the universal story. And we're like, there's a lot of universal elements in this. There's stuff about familial trauma. There's stuff about puberty. There's stuff about body insecurity. Like you don't have to be a Chinese Canadian 13 year old in 2002 to resonate with this movie. But so many men are just like hardwired due to like the years and years of media consumption to see Ferris Bueller as a universal story and share Horowitz as something for girls. Man, I wish that Pixar still made movies that could appeal to everyone. Like, I don't know about anyone else, but I personally resonate with Cars 3 as a car. (laughs) (laughs) We love Titan. I love Titian. Um, (laughs) No, but like speaking on movies, 
we can relate that exactly back to boy bands when you think about something like the twilight craze and i fully admit like we did an episode on twilight where i talk about how i would not have a career in film criticism uh which is what i do for my day job if it weren't for my open hatred of twilight as a teenager because then i was able to be tokenized by a bunch of like men in the industry of oh well if this teen girl that we know doesn't like twilight that means Mm. it's fair game for all of us to be horrible misogynist homophobic monsters about this movie that is appealing to a bunch of teen girls and there are so many systemic and like fundamental issues that came out of the twilight craze like They got Catherine Hardwick to direct that movie because they didn't think that it was going to make any money. And then when it made fuck you banger amounts of money, they removed her from the director's chair and the rest of the franchise was directed by white men. And that is a huge issue is they discounted everything about this movie because they were like, oh, this is teen girl fluff. And they didn't realize there is power in the teen girl dollar. And it's surprising that they felt that way knowing that the boy band craze came before the Twilight craze. And you saw how much money there was in the the almighty teen girl dollar. Because people like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC especially sort of became overnight sensations. And they should have been overnight millionaires had it not been for the evil that is Lou Pearlman. Big Papa, you mean. Big Papa Lou, (sighs) who was... Just an absolute trash goblin of a human being who stole money from both of them. Definitely everyone should check out the boy band con. It's free on YouTube right now because it was a YouTube original. So like you're not pirating it. It's not an illegal upload. Like it's just there. And it's produced by Lance Bass, somebody who was directly impacted by Lou Pearlman being an awful monster. So it's really, really strange to know how, how fickle the minds are of the people who were like, Twilight will make no money because there's no money in Teen Girl, forgetting the fact that teen girls were responsible for the course of music in the pop charts and kind of still are today. Like, you cannot be a pop sensation if you don't have girls on your side. You just can't. That's just how the industry works at this point. And I know on the flip side of that, Harmony, you had kind of an interesting experience not coming from the boy band ilk of this kind of meta look at it where you were thinking of it in terms of capitalism and exploitation of emotion. Uh, Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of good things about boy bands on, on one side. There's the... Um... There's the freedom for girls to experience like the sensation of love and heartbreak from a safe distance where a man is not actually going to hurt them just by like the lyrics and the songwriters of boy band music. Personally, I'm not team NSYNC or team Backstreet Boys. I'm team. Fuck, I forgot my dude's name. Max Martin. Max Martin. Because he played both sides of the field and wrote a million hits and he does big bombastic nonsense that I appreciate as someone who likes punk music. But there is something good about that. But in the same basket, you have the more cynical approach to boy bands in which they are emotionally manipulating young girls through a parasocial relationships where they have these archetypes that are easy to understand for them. And in more recent iterations, like with One Direction or a lot of the K-pop bands, you have social media and... Whilst I think that there's a lot more freedom for these people to express themselves than, say, the boy bands of of my youth, I think that you're now getting into a new problem where you have people like, you know, now any number of K-pop groups where they are able to exploit queer baiting via makeup and exploration of fashion, uh, typically feminine fashion. And that's all well and good, but if you're gay, then suddenly the allure of actually being able to be an option for female fans is gone, and also the record company won't stand for it, and it has negatively impacted Korean singers who have come out as gay, and I only know this because of a, like, four-hour crash course in (laughs) boy band stuff that BJ took me on last night. But all the same, it just feels like... There's good things held in the same basket as bad things. And on a personal level, it just feels 
like everything that was wrong with tattoo during the time, which is that <laughs> that I understand that I was there for. And oh, I was there for on repeat. Uh huh. So like <laughs> it's 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 a lot and it's messy and I get the appeal of like modern boy bands like EXO or um, BTS because American pop music is like so minor chord and sparse and dreadful and miserable for the most part. So having like these bombastic, very showy, fun bands like I get the appeal, but there's always something scummy to the corporate aspect of a boy band in particular versus other musical artists. So... To close us out, what do we hope for the future of pop and fangirls? Doesn't just have to be boy bands, but pop and fangirls. I hope that there is a legitimacy to the fandom and to the art form. Bubblegum pop music just in general gets written off as being lesser than all the time. And the performance is also discounted as being, you know, tween or childish or what have you, when in reality, they're working incredibly hard. Yeah, they may not be playing their guitars. Um, I mean, unless you're the Jonas Brothers, they can do it all. But (laughs) for the most part, you know, they're just singing, but they're also dancing. Like this is performance art more than anything. And there is a legitimacy to enjoying that. And I am hoping that one day, While we're in kind of our swing of the toxic positivity of let people enjoy things, I hope that it sticks in terms of pop music of like, it's not cool to make fun of people because they want to sing Olivia Rodrigo songs. Just like, let them like the music that they like. It's resonating with them on a personal level. All of our relationships with media are extremely personal. And if it's not for you and you don't get it, that's cool. But no need to discount it for those that it does resonate with. Do you know that I've been working on a cover of Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo? This is the best news I've gotten all day. (laughs) Okay, Harmony, what do you hope for? Oh, I haven't the faintest idea. I this this isn't my world. I don't even know what the state of pop music is going to look like in like, say, two years when we're, you know, fingers crossed, comfortably back to a pre-pandemic cycle of everything. I do find it very interesting as a person who's pretty cynical about a lot of teen oriented music and the pop charts in particular, because I I don't like that only like 140 songs chart on the Billboard Hot 100 every year, because that's just stagnant and dreadful. But one thing that has happened that's very, very cool out of the pandemic is that a lot of independent artists have been charting based on the strength of like TikTok mm. because so many big artists refused to release their albums during a pandemic when they weren't able to tour. So many big artists are are unfortunately flopping like Katy Perry. I don't know if her career is ever going to recover. The times have changed and she's made a few bad decisions, unfortunately. But I think that there is new places for people to find music. And if nothing else, Olivia Rodrigo is a good example of teens producing music that is meant towards teens and having a strong resonance on like a large scale of fans finding it, but also just in terms of like opening up to wider genres. Um, I I don't listen to Olivia Rodrigo very much because I'm, I don't know, a a curmudgeon old person who would rather listen to Meatloaf when I want to think about, like, my teenage anguish and heartbreak. <laughs> but I, I I do love that things are, are changing and are becoming more fun and people are finding, you know, pop artists that are specifically, that don't feel like they were designed to be as big as they are, but in a good way, people are getting behind them. And maybe that's the power, like the equalizing power of social media is we don't need these people behind the scenes writing this Mm -hmm. music Mm -hmm. as essentially an on-purpose manipulation, which we see with different writers throughout, you know, whether it be a good or bad manipulation doesn't always have to be like a very negative thing. But I think that having these pop artists be able to write their own music and have the ability to reach so many people is has already massively changed 
the state of music. Oh, definitely. There's actually, right now, we're in a very interesting time because we're seeing a complete refusal to accept the industry plant. Because in saying Backstreet Boys, like, yeah, they all worked their butts off for years, but they were made by design. Like, they are essentially their industry plants. And we recently saw that last year when the band Tramp Stamps uh, was, like, the big thing on TikTok. And they were these girls with you know, fantasy colored hair. They were kind of punk rock, like very Paramore inspired writing songs that were supposed to speak to the new woke generation of young girls. And TikTok figured out pretty quickly that they were industry plants, that these were all, you know, musicians that were put together to and like given a specific image and given specific songs to sing with all of the right buzzwords. And they rejected it immediately. Wow, that's fascinating. Like that band is no more. Like they don't exist really anymore. It's it's wild and it's because now that our parasocial relationships have changed with pop stars. We're not buying issues of J14 and reading about Justin Timberlake's favorite pizza and learning about this image that has been presented to us and crafted. We're learning about them from their TikToks and their Instagram lives and their Twitter and the things that they are putting out personally. So our relationship has changed. And now we do have that level of authenticity, even if somebody is like a little bit famous or kind of came out of nowhere or is a nepotism baby, what have you. We're able to establish that relationship with them where we feel like we know them and we feel like their music is speaking to us more personally because we know them so much better. And that's what's changed. And that's why bands can be found on TikTok and become famous because they already have that built in defense. Like you feel like friends and you want to stick up for your friends and you want to see your friends succeed. So if you're that person who got in there on the on the ground floor when they were just putting out LPs on TikTok hoping for a couple of likes, now suddenly you're part of their success story and that makes you feel good. And that is an exact like one-to-one comparison of the hipsterism mm-hmm. of of the emo scene and finding that one band before they got big, knowing them, you know, way back when. And it's it's just a sign that all of these things are cyc- cyclical. The aesthetics that we used in 80s hair metal is the same makeup that we see in K-pop artists. The parasocial relationships that we developed and manipulated in the, the pop music scene is the same thing that we're doing now with upcoming artists. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. It's just getting one step further in the evolution. I love that at the end of every one of our The Sons of Prom episodes, I get a shout out an indie band that I want people to check out. And people actually do. And I would be lying if I said that I wasn't this hipster person going like, I'm doing my part in helping people listen to the Sonderbombs or Boy Junior or We Are the Union. Like, golly gee, I'm so glad that they're successful because they're talented and they deserve it. So... Yes, absolutely. Everything BJ just said. (laughs) Well, I think it sounds like a bright future. We can all hope, at least. Seriously. (laughs) Thank you both for not only recording with me today, but recording with me twice. (laughs) Oh, and one more thing. I also just recorded an episode with you guys about one of Mm -hmm. my favorite teen movies, Cruel Intentions. Mm -hmm. When is that coming out? Whatever next Thursday is. Well, please make sure you check out my episode of Cruel Intentions and also the rest of your great catalog. And uh, I know you are doing Spring Breakers soon, which is its own. Oh, what a surreal fever dream it is. Uh. Spring break forever. (laughs) Beautiful. Make sure you check out This Ends at Prom, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find them on Twitter at This Ends at Prom. You can find BJ at BJ Colangelo and Harmony at Velosa Trapdoor. That's Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And there you can find all the other dope things this power couple is up to. To close out our Fangirls and Boy Bands series, we're going to have one more interview next week. Thanks for bearing with us these last couple off weeks. And in the weeks that are going to follow, we are going to be taking a few off. Things are a little bit messy behind the scenes, but in a good way. And we're just catching up on all that stuff we have to do behind the velvet curtain. 
If you want more of our show, just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, and you can get access to two different podcasts, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor, and Walk With Me, where I go on walks and tell you more of my personal thoughts and experiences. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Come follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter and head to AmericanHysteria.com to get some of our hot merch. This episode was hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, produced by Miranda Zickler, with sound design by Clear Camo Studios. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next week, bye-bye-bye. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.